0: open to the world
1: from new york i'm julia chatterley this is first move and here's your need to know pandemic pain another 6.6 million people file for unemployment benefits in the united states continued improvement the latest on the health of the uk prime minister boris johnson and pandemic privacy we speak to the cfo of conference app zoom about their new protections it's thursday let's make a move Welcome once again to First Move. It's so great to be with you as always. And some welcome news first on the social distancing measures being taken here in the United States and across Europe. It seems that they are helping. We're seeing the curve flatten here in the United States and we appear to be seeing cases peak in parts of Europe too. However the economic damage from the self-induced shutdowns deepens. As I mentioned, we now know a further 6.6 million Americans filed for first-time unemployment benefits just in the last week. That equates to over 16 million people thrown out of work in the last three weeks alone. What's more, we know there are backlogs, big backlogs in processing these claims. If you remember yesterday, Paul Krugman told us that he expects a 20% unemployment rate in the United States by mid-April key, of course, to stemming that. Loans to the biggest employers in the nation, the small businesses. We could see a vote in the Senate on an additional $250 billion worth of lending capacity just to try and calm things down. But the Democrats are arguing more money for states and health care should be added too. You can't choose between these things. It's time to act. The Fed though, the Federal Reserve, not hanging around, taking fresh action today to help get loans out to businesses, among others. They're offering... In total, some $2.3 trillion in new lending programs, including an additional $600 billion worth of support for medium-sized businesses. We'll hear from Jay Powell at 10 a.m. Eastern time to get more detail on what this all means and how quickly, of course, it will work. For now, U.S. futures are higher on the news after a strong session Wednesday. The Dow... And the S&P rising more than 3%, encouraging medical data, as I've mentioned, and continued talk about somehow getting the U.S. economy up and running. I think helping sentiment here, even the talk worth something. European stocks rising too, and Asia having a, as you can see here, broadly mixed, but the ones that I'm showing you here are positive. I just remain concerned about how we open up the United States economy without some form of mass testing we saw that in places like South Korea we see it we think happening in China too for now Europe is key. Discussions underway in France, Germany and Italy too. Norway, Austria, Denmark and the Czech Republic have already announced gradual reopening and for the economies, for the people, that can't come soon enough. We'll be discussing. For now though, Richard Quest joins us. Richard, I don't know where to start. First on the shocking, the devastating increase that we keep seeing in, in those claiming for unemployment benefits in the United States. We know this because it's purposeful, but also the Federal Reserves stepping up here and saying, look, we'll make more money available, whatever it takes.
2: Essentially, what the Fed is doing is agreeing to use all these loans, these payroll protection loans that the banks are making as collateral for further loans against it. Uh, This new Main Street facility is for those companies with more than 500 employees who don't have direct access. Those under 500 employees use the PPP, the payroll protection. And I've got here, I, I printed it up this morning, Julia, just a list of all the different plans that the Fed has put in place. And they're all basically the same thing. In some shape or form, the Fed is acting as the backstop agreeing to take commercial paper from companies government bonds and now these payroll protection loans as collateral against further lending
1: yes They'll buy anything, they'll try and keep borrowing costs down for for corporates, push money yeah, but- to the small and medium-sized enterprises. Even the municipalities, I saw that word in this too, which I do think is critical. Richard, do you remember during the financial crisis where we'd always use this word, transition mechanism? or the phrase, it's okay throwing money at something, but you have to actually see the cash get there. And what we're struggling with in the United States is the transition mechanism of agreeing money for people and for businesses, but it's just taking time to get to them.
2: And that remains a problem. And and I'm glad you talked about transmission uh, and the mechanism because if we look at what the Bank of England has done, Today, the BOE has short-circuited the transmission mechanism normally through the government guilt market and is now making direct loans to the government, its so-called monetary financing. Now, monetary financing is allowed by the BOE because of its constitution and the way it runs. It is strictly forbidden by the European Central Bank. There can be no direct monetary financing of government expenditures by the Central Bank. And this is a major development as well, which shows the size and scale and amounts. On the markets, quickly, Julia, I think they're testing. I I know your caution and I think you're right with your caution and bearing in mind your caution I think they are testing and testing the upper limits of what they believe the appetite for investors is at the moment.
1: I, I couldn't agree more to be honest and you know when you held up those sheets of paper I was just running it through in my mind as well we have seen nothing like this in terms of stimulus so financial aid so at the the same time when we're saying and we bring it back to the science that we we don't know what reopening the economy looks like we don't know what the science of getting on top of the health crisis looks like nor do we have any sense of understanding of how potent throwing this kind of money at the system does not only for the underlying economy but for markets too and those two things are different
2: and, 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 i just leave you with a thought. Uh, I know this is a long way in the future, and we're not worrying about this now, but it all has to be unwound at some point. I mean, you know, 2021, all of this has to be unwound. Please, God, we get to the position where we have to unwind. Let me leave you with that. Please, God, we get to that position.
1: Yeah, higher taxes. We still haven't unwound what we did during the financial crisis, oh. Richard. Oh, Who knows what? where this ends? Thank you so much for that. Great discussion, as always. Richard Crest now as the u.s faces up to an employment catastrophe another crisis a jobs crisis spain one of those nations also looking to try and get its country restarted the prime minister pedro sanchez says the pandemic's peak has been reached and the country will soon start de-escalating lockdown measures scott mclean is in madrid and joins us now scott when i look at europe no country more than spain needs to protect its economy and get restarted however that looks like but what does that actually mean in practice for spain
3: Sure. So one of the things that Spain has been pushing for is a pan-European solution to their economic problems, which have been deep and will likely be long lasting. This is a country that had 13 percent unemployment even before the coronavirus came along. So today, uh, the group of 19 finance ministers that that use the uh, the countries that use the euro will be meeting today to try to hash out some kind of a solution on European stimulus to the to the coronavirus on a basic level the divide has been north-south countries like Germany and Holland versus countries like Italy and Spain Germany and Holland not wanting to take on debt from less affluent countries like Italy or Spain Spain though uh, really wanting things to be done in unison originally pushing for Europe to issue debt so called Corona Bonds, which have been a non-starter for the Germans. But uh, the prime minister, Pedro Sanchez, has really been on a a lobbying campaign, writing in in, uh, 10 European newspapers just a couple of days ago that, look, you need some cohesion. Otherwise, it will threaten the viability or will badly damage this European project. The Spanish foreign minister went even further than that, telling a French newspaper that either Europe will kill the coronavirus or the coronavirus will kill Europe.
1: Wow. What a potent statement. But Scott, you know, I, I've spent a lot of time in Spain. I've been in Madrid many times. I'm just looking at the street and I recognise it behind you and it's its utterly empty. And as much as the conversation in Spain is about, look, how are we going to restart? What I'm seeing behind you is is a capital city that remains on significant shutdown measures and will continue to be like that for the next month, I believe, what does restart look like? Are they giving us any detail?
3: Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I've, I've spoken to friends in the United States or or in uh, in the UK who's you know have a very different idea of lockdown. Here, it means something quite different. As you can see, this is one of the main shopping streets uh, in Madrid. Uh, we're just steps away from the the physical center of the city, and there's almost nobody here. People are only allowed out of their homes to go to work and only if they are essential workers or to go to the grocery store or the pharmacy or to get essential supplies. And so today, uh, the Spanish parliament is voting, actually, probably as we speak, they're they're very likely voting on whether to extend the state of emergency until April 26th. That is likely to pass. But the government is promising that non-essential workers, which who have had to stay home for about the last two weeks or so, will be allowed to go back to their jobs beginning on Monday. This applies to industries like construction and manufacturing, but does not apply to restaurants and bars. So this scene is going to stay as it is for quite some time. In terms of where we are in in the death toll and the numbers, you mentioned the prime minister said that this country has reached its peak and now it's sort of on the decline. It's managed to flatten the curve, and that seems to be true. The number of deaths was almost 700, but the number of new active cases, or the increase in active cases, I should say, was less than a thousand for the last two days. That's the first time that's happened in almost a month. But Julia, there are some real questions about the accuracy of the numbers here in Spain. A CNN analysis done by my colleagues and I showed that there were 3000 plus deaths more than average compared to last year in the last half of the month of March that were not attributed to the coronavirus. And so the true number of deaths is likely much higher Case in point, the uh, the regional government of Madrid says that thousands of people have died in nursing homes who had coronavirus symptoms but were never actually tested and thus were not added to the official tally. For its part, though, the Spanish government says, look, it counts anyone as a coronavirus death if they tested positive for the virus. That, they say, is in line with European and WHO guidelines.
1: Yeah, it's just worrying, isn't it? We really are at the beginning of this. Scott? Great to have you with us. Scott McLean there. Stay safe. All right, the British Prime Minister is in good spirits and his condition is improving, says his spokesman, Boris Johnson. Spent a third night in intensive care fighting COVID-19 symptoms. Nick Peyton walsh joins us now. Nick, well, improvement, we take that. That's good news.
3: Well, absolutely, yes, uh, but it is, I think, the first day, it's fair to say, that we've had the suggestion that he is getting better. Yesterday, we are being told that he was stable uh, and responding to treatment. Today, as you said, they go on to point out he's had a good night and continues to improve. He is still receiving, quote, standard oxygen treatment, the suggestion clearly being from his advisers that he is not on a ventilator, and I think it is fair to say now that the British public are getting a slow drip of good news about his condition. Certainly no bad news is good news by definition itself, Julius. So, yes, the notion, I think, that the top medical care that he's able to get in the United Kingdom seems certainly to be paying off at this point, Julia.
1: Great news. Nick Peyton walsh thank you so much for that update there. All right, in the next hour, OPEC will have a virtual meeting with its partners to discuss cutting oil supply. A price war between Saudi Arabia and Russia and a lack of demand have caused bread crude to plummet 50% year-to-date. Prices today, as you can see, are a little bit higher. Clearly some optimism there. John Defterius joins us now. John, what are you hearing heading into this meeting about what kind of deal may be striked and struck my apologies and who may be involved in that deal because that's key to
4: It is uh, very key, uh, Julia. We've heard a lot in the last 45 minutes. Uh, Tough times require tough measures, and that's what we're hearing, particularly because the demand side of the equation is dropping so fast. A week ago when we talked, it was maybe a drop of 20 million barrels a day. Now we're looking at 30 to 35, so there is no choice. Uh, Again, it goes back to the big three, the United States, Saudi Arabia, and Russia. Donald Trump brought the latter two back together again. And we're hearing in the last hour that Saudi Arabia is now willing to cut 4 million barrels a day. These are being leaked out regionally. Uh, That would be, though, from a base in April when they ramped up their productions, going from 12 million barrels a day to above 8 million barrels a day. Russia now, get this, Julia, going to 1.6 million barrels a day of a cut that is equal to or slightly higher than what they walked out of for the entire group just a month ago that's how much things have changed now vladimir putin is holding a very tough line on the united states and other g20 members saying you cannot come in with a practical or automatic cut to the table that automatic is that the uh, energy information administration saying the us will lose a million barrels a day in 2020 and another million in 2021 which by the way i think is low putin saying you have to be firm on that and they've invited 12 players beyond the united states and canada alberta's showing cooperation here so is brazil even norway but by this time tomorrow at the g20 they have to say what is hard and fast if you can't deliver that don't ask us to put up better than 10 million barrels on the table at this stage
1: you know it's fascinating john when we spoke to the american petroleum institute chief last week he said look It's happening organically in the United States. Mm. Up to a third of our capacity is gone or at least been switched off due to low prices anyway. Does that matter in these discussions if that's what the message from the United States is? It's happening organically.
4: Well, it doesn't matter, and I'll tell you why. It's because Mm. of the flexibility of the U.S. shale producers, Julia. They can go on and go off, and they're owned by the majors, by and large, all the acquisitions in the last 18 uh, months. So it's interesting, the narrative from Donald Trump now when it comes to OPEC. He hated him before and says that has now broken. And we know the threshold pain here. $70 on the top where we were in January, $20, $25 on the bottom. So can this collective group, 23 from OPEC Plus, a dozen uh, other players that are around the table and on the phone conference today come with a package that gets you to between 40 and 45, $50 for the rest of 2020. The other surprise, I think, here, Julia, would be the G20 tomorrow would say, look, on our side, we're gonna start filling our strategic reserves and boost demand to stabilize the market. That would be a big win. The final point here, Saudi Arabia is under intense pressure. Yet another letter from nearly 50 congressmen and women uh, to the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia saying, you're a G20 chair, you're an ally of the United States, you buy weapons, we back you on Iran, do the right thing. They're not saying that to Vladimir Putin or anyone else, but clearly to Riyadh.
1: Yeah, there's no cushion on that G20 chair at this moment. <laughs> hmm. Don thank you as always. Alright, We're going to take a quick break here on First Move, but coming up in our segment A Time to Act, what Colgate Palmolive is doing at a time where we need health and hygiene products more than ever, and also keeping it clean. Important advice to ensure your Zoom chat doesn't get some unwanted visitors. That's coming up. Stay with us. Welcome back to First a Move. And what an extraordinary hour it's been for markets. U.S. futures have turned higher after the U.S. Federal Reserve announced yet another whatever-it-takes moments announcing some further $2.3 trillion in new support programs. That includes a $600 billion amount in fresh help for small and medium-sized enterprises and aid to state and local governments, too, just simply to help them lower borrowing costs. Fed Chair Jay Powell is set to talk more about all of this at the top of the hour. But as you can see, U.S. futures certainly reacting to that also before the bell, the US announcing that a further 6.6 million Americans filed for first-time jobless benefits. That's more than 16 million people doing so since the crisis began. It's in the space of three weeks. Today's numbers coming in at close to analysts' worst estimates and probably understates the number of people that are trying to ask for support here. Joining us now, Jason Furman, Professor of uh, Practice of Economic Policy at Harvard University. He's also a former Chair of the White House Council economic advisors and was one of the first to suggest making direct payments to those in need jason fantastic to have you on the show once again first i just want to get your assessment of what we're seeing here in terms of the the sheer scale of people that are claiming unemployment benefits not a surprise to many but these are shocking absolute numbers
0: yeah these are shocking numbers. And in one sense, it confirms what we didn't need economic data to even know, which is that much of the economy is being shut down. It's being shut down on purpose to battle a virus. But there is a flip side to it. These are 17 million people that are going to be getting benefits. They're gonna be getting an extra $600 a week. The criteria for those benefits have been loosened. And we don't know how many have been fired, which was a big problem versus furloughed and will be rehired when the economy restarts. That's what we'll need to keep our eye on um, going forward. How much of this is temporary assistance versus a prolonged period of unemployment?
1: I know it's putting you on the spot and desperately hard to gauge here, but that is such an important point. What's your gauge or estimate of of what proportion perhaps will be scooped back up again very quickly if we can restart the economy uh, over the next couple of months?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think certainly at least 50 percent, but that still means it's devastating. So instead of 17 million, it's 8 million people that are genuinely unemployed. So I think you're going to see a huge crunch in the economy. I mean, you're seeing it right now. You're going to see then a partial bounce back in the economy as people get hired, as business activity restarts. And then how far that partial bounce back goes to undo the crunch is so critical. You know, I think it might just be you know a bit more than half, which will leave us with a long slog ahead of us um, after that initial reopening period.
1: How long do you think it takes on that point to, to get back to the point we were before this began? There's a risk here that we have a persistence problem with the number of people that are out of work.
0: Yeah, I worry that it's a, it's a five year period before we get our unemployment rate down. Um, it's hard to lower unemployment rates very quickly because to find a new job, to go out and find a new job is tough. And employers need to interview a bunch of people. You need to send resumes to a bunch of places, um, and that, that's a tough process that takes time. So the rehiring people, that'll be fine. But once you get past the rehiring phase, um, labor markets just take a long time to sort themselves out, unfortunately.
1: You made a great point as well about the fact that we have seen unemployment benefits extended, they've been expanded to gig economy workers, um, to self-employed too, which I think is important in this country also. But we're seeing challenges getting money out to small and medium-sized enterprises, that people are struggling to even file for unemployment. The the system was not built to cope with this volume of claims. Is there anything based on your experience and understanding that could be done to, to make this quicker?
0: Yeah, I mean, I was frustrated with the um, unemployment insurance system before this in terms of it's been starved of administrative funding. It didn't function nearly as well as it should have before this. And this is a massive amount to cope with. Um, They have put a lot of administrative funding into unemployment insurance. It's gonna take time. For that to work through and hire the people they need to, but some states are transferring people from other departments into the unemployment insurance department. The small business lending program um, definitely got off to a rocky start, but on the other hand, this is a massive new government program that launched within two weeks. If they straighten these problems out in two weeks, it'll be, you know, one month to get the program up and running. You know, that that's miraculously fast. So, yeah. you know, we need really, really fast. We're getting pretty fast.
1: Should more money be added? If Congress can come to some agreement, should more money be added?
0: Yeah, um, the small business program appears to be set to run out of money. Um, I, you know, I had some qualms about that program, but now that Congress has passed it, I think it should be funded. Um, states and localities was the biggest omission in the CARES Act. It paid for the emergency spending needs of states. The biggest problem is how are states going to pay for their teachers in September? We're going to want our children back in school. We're going to need teachers and their tax revenue is down enormously. There's gonna be huge state budget cuts, including in education, if we don't support them. So that's really important. Um, And then at some point we're gonna need to extend the assistance that we've already done because a lot of it um, expires over the summer and our problems will not, unfortunately, I don't think end over the summer.
1: Yeah, extension and expansion. That's the takeaway I'm getting from this conversation. Jason, fantastic to talk to you again. Jason Furman, we'll speak to you soon. Stay safe, sir. Okay, we're counting down to the market open. What a morning. News from the Federal Reserve. We're waiting for Jay Powell, of course. This is the reaction in futures and more devastating job losses in the United States, too. More to discuss. Stay with us. Thumbs up there for some of our essential workers and quite right too. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stock markets are open for trading this Thursday, the last trading session of the week due to Good Friday observances. Two stocks are beginning the session with solid gains after more mammoth stimulus coming from the Federal Reserve. They announced fresh programs to help support the U.S. economy during this period of shutdown, announcing $2.3 trillion to be specific in new support, including fresh lending to small and medium sized businesses, as well as states and local governments, too, just trying to keep borrowing costs for these areas down. Also, this after yet another dire report on jobless claims filings in the United States. A further 6.6 million people filed last week. Christine Romans joins us now on this Christine, never has support I think from the Federal Reserve been more desperately required here because once again those filings for for jobless claims, an astonishing number and probably underestimating the number of people that are asking for help here
5: Yeah, when you look at the, in March, the American labor market had 162 million people in it. You take out 16 and a half million in just three weeks. That's 10% of the labor market in just three weeks, uh, laid off. And it's so important to point out some of those are furloughs. We don't know exactly how many. So they could be poised to return at some point. Uh, and that's important for recovery. But a lot of these are layoffs and it can be hard to repair damage done in the American, uh, labor market. It's so interesting because to prevent, uh, the spread of one crisis you risk creating a new one and that is telling people to stay at home has consequences it means uh, jobs are lost and that is a really uh, interesting dilemma where we find ourselves here especially when you've got the president now talking about he wants to open up with a big bang he says we're ahead of the curve ahead of schedule for opening up the economy but you don't want to risk and, and these numbers certainly certainly uh, cause so much concern you see so many people losing your job their jobs but you don't want to come back to too early either uh, and risk permanent damage to the American economy and the labor market.
1: No, it's that delicate balancing act of protecting those that are being pressured as a result of the measures that we're taking to try and control the health crisis. We all hope it's a big bang, Christine. We hope that the economy can kick back in as soon as possible and and people can get their jobs back. Um, Support measures, that's what's key. And whether Congress can agree more support, it looks like the Federal Reserve this morning saying, we're not waiting around, we're going to try and backstop all of these programs and keep borrowing costs down for people. And the
5: Fed really a Main Street backstop. When you look at some of the things that they've done, uh, they have really, uh, you know, you've always seen the Fed as sort of, you know, protecting the integrity of the financial system and making sure there's oxygen uh, flowing in the financial system writ large. And then that uh, eventually supports Main Street. But I'm seeing a Fed here that is going out of its way to make sure that this is a a Main Street bailout, a Main Street uh, backstop. And that is incredibly important here, especially after 2008 and 2009, remember, where so much money definitely. Opposite spending uh, occurred, and in the end, it was the perception that it was Wall Street that was bailed out. You know, the bad guys were bailed out, the people who caused the crisis were bailed out, and and the people who were hurt by the crisis weren't. And I see a very different kind of uh, attempt, uh, uh, mode of attack this time around.
1: Oh, yes, absolutely, Christine Romans. Thank you so much for that. As Christine was saying there, never a better time to act, and it's time to act, and more and more companies are responding to that call to action. Today, we're focusing on Colgate Palmolive, it's the world's largest producer of toothpaste as well as many other household products. The company has just announced it's producing 25 million bars of soap for the World Health Organization. Colgate also says it's donating $20 million worth of health and hygiene products to those most in need. Dr. Maria Ryan is the Chief Clinical Officer at Colgate-Palmolive, and she joins us now. Dr. Ryan, fantastic to have you with us. Talk to me about the decision from the company to take action of this form and, and simply how you're going about achieving it
6: yeah julia it's so nice to be here with you and um i wish i was actually there with you but we're all doing our part uh staying home and and trying to prevent transmission of the disease um you know our founder william colgate over 200 years ago started our our company as a soap company Uh, And we've continued to grow, as you've mentioned, and not only in personal care, but oral care, home care, and even pet nutrition. And uh, as a a healthcare provider, I, I can tell you, uh, the importance of hand washing. It is our first line of defense against disease transmission. And uh, Colgate, as a, a global company with global reach um, to the global communities uh, that we service, we thought it was really important for us to support uh, the World Health Organization's hashtag SafeHands. A global initiative by donating the 25 million bars of soap that you mentioned that will go out to families most in need. And in addition, you know, that bar of soap ends up being an educational vehicle because we have an infodemic as well as our pandemic with people getting lots of information, hmm. some of it good, some not so good. Um, and so on the bar of soap itself, it will describe uh, proper hand washing techniques. You know, when you lather up, not only cleaning the palms of your hands, but the back of your hands, each individual finger in between the fingers, the nails, underneath the nails and the wrists. So that information is really important to uh, share with people throughout the world. And so the, the stuff will be distributed by our NGO partners throughout the world uh, based on recommendations made by the World Health Organization of the, to the communities that are really most in need.
1: It's, to your exact point, the first line of defence and and whatever we can do to keep promoting that is very important. You're also doing an employee matching scheme if your employees want to donate money, which I did want to draw attention to too. But you have 34,000 employees. I was looking at where they're located and we were just showing that around the world. How do you go about protecting 34,000 employees operating all over the world at various different stages of this epidemic. Talk to me about, as the chief clinician at, at, at Palmolive, at Colgate at Palmolive, how you're doing that.
6: Well, you know, I, I, I'm very proud of our company. Um, I think the initiative, not only with the World Health Organization, but the $20 million in, in product that we are donating as well and and, and distributing through international aid agencies, you know, to provide uh, people who are in need because we have a financial crisis as well uh, with the proper, you know, hygiene and 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 um, uh, personal care products that they need during this crisis uh, is important as well as the uh, donations we as employees will be making uh, to uh, provide funds uh, to those you know in the, in the front lines, uh, whether they're um, healthcare organizations, etc. And so the company itself is taking really all the necessary precautions to protect our employees. Many of us are, are working from home. we can't travel that's why I'm not with you there today. but there are added precautions for our employees, who actually have to make these health and hygiene products that are so necessary at this time uh, that are working in the plants throughout the world and fortunately we have such a, a, a robust uh, distribution um, global distribution achieve that, we, it. Yeah, that we can yeah. get products very very quickly
1: so the Dr. Ryan I just I want, want, want to ask very quickly like, because I do want to talk to you as well about getting back to work Italy. You also have operations in Italy, too. And this is a country we've been focusing on. What's your plan for getting back to work in that specific country?
6: Yeah, I think we we have plans that are specific to various regions throughout the world. Uh, And obviously, we are uh, very aware of uh, how this virus is rolling out. In different parts of the world, and so we have to specifically look at the needs of each area. Um, China was hit first, uh, and China is coming back up first. Uh, Other areas of the world that are hit harder, uh, like Italy, things will take some time. However, we continue to operate uh, to the best of our abilities, taking all of the precautions You know, staggering our work schedules, uh, social distancing, um, hand washing uh, stations that are put in in many more places than before to allow for that uh, social distancing, providing people with PPE as needed, and enhancing the cleansing and sanitization of various facilities throughout the world. So, the new um, normal
1: that is is the reflection of Mm -hmm. the new normal. Dr. Maria Ryan thank you so much for everything you and your employees are doing, and it was great to chat to you. We shall reconvene in per- in person in the future. I stay so. safe. so, and stay <laughs> safe and well, Julia,
6: the same thank to you. all of your listeners, and keep your hands cool
1: I promise, and we shall all do right. our best to. Thank you. All We're going to take a break here on First Move for coming up.
4: We're ready to go, guys. Thank you so much for coming to the wedding
1: getting married by Zoom. It started as a business tool, now it's a social saviour. The CFO joins us next with some important tips. Whether it's serious business meetings, happy hours, classes, or even online weddings, the popularity of Zoom has, well, zoomed. Despite the threat of virtual gate crashes, we'll hear from the CFO in just a moment. But first, as Claire Sebastian reports, Zoom is throwing a lifeline to lockdown businesses and many more. Adapting to life under lockdown,
7: one crunch at a time. For Jackie Ars Quinton and Jeff Quinton, owners of two Pure Bar workout studios in New Jersey, this was the closest they could get to business as usual, with the help of Zoom.
8: That's interesting, I'm able to see all of the clients and kind of correct their form as if I were in the studio, but also Our clients can see each other, who they're typically used to taking class with, so it keeps that community vibe.
7: On March 15th, they made the difficult decision to close their studios, one of which had only opened in January, just one day before New Jersey's governor made it mandatory. By 9.30am the next morning, they were up and running online. Revenue is limited, with customers now paying just half the usual monthly rate. They have applied for a small business loan. But these classes should make it easier to bounce back.
0: So Zoom is definitely helping us um, retain clients mm-hmm. um, and re- retain some of the business that we have.
7: The importance of keeping your brand relevant during this time is something Alana Horwich also discovered through Zoom. Is what's happening right now is little bubbles are forming around the garlic. The cookbook author and cookery teacher started offering free cooking classes on Zoom several weeks ago as a good deed.
6: It's raised my social media numbers. It's brought many people to my mailing list. It's increased my book sales.
7: As huge swathes of the world's population has entered lockdown, Zoom went from 10 million users in December to more than 200 million in March. Its market value now dwarfing the major U.S. airlines. And when so many businesses, schools, religious organizations, even a British government cabinet meeting all rely on the platform, security is critical. In the U.S., the FBI has warned about a rise in so-called Zoom bombing, hackers dropping into meetings or school classes and displaying pornographic and or hate images and threatening language. The New York Department of Education even instructed its schools to move away from Zoom in favor of Microsoft Teams.
3: We had some missteps over the past weeks. And our intention is good, now we learn lesson, and we double down, triple down on privacy and security.
7: Still, while it took a global pandemic to make Zoom a household name, for some new customers, habits are forming.
6: I can imagine that once we're out of quarantine, I imagine that I would build a profitable online cooking school so that I can teach from my home and reach people all over the world. Can you use a flavoured olive oil?
7: Uh, No, you may not.
1: Next question. Plus, Sebastian CNN, New York. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Kelly Steffelberg is CFO of Zoom and joins us now. Kelly, I'm sure you were listening to that. You literally became all things to everyone in the space of a few months. 10 million people to 200 million. Is that at the core of the challenges that you've had? You were overwhelmed in a very short space of time.
8: Hi, Julia. Thanks for having me. I think really what it comes down to is Zoom was built originally to be an enterprise platform, and enterprises and organizations that historically have leveraging have IT organizations that help educate their users and do things like set privacy settings. And what we've seen is all these amazing new use cases. I loved hearing the examples in the intro. And starting to see all these different use cases that we had never even contemplated before and thinking about the features, functionality, security features that these new use cases require. And that's really what we've been focused on for the last year.
1: You know, it's interesting because I I saw your CEO say that many times too. It was always about businesses rather than about consumers and you have to find a balance. But in the end, businesses surely care about, about privacy too. Can you not create a product over the next 90 days? And I know you have a plan in place now that will cater for all going forward.
8: Yeah, so the amazing thing about our platform is that it has always worked, whether you were an individual sole proprietor all the way up to the enterprise, but you highlighted exactly the the opportunity here, which is to be more focused to ensure that privacy and security extends across that whole reach of users as well. So for the next ninety days, we have announced that we are halting new feature introductions on the platform and really taking that time to develop all of our engineering resources to ensuring that the platform is secure and meets all the privacy requirements out of for all the new users that we've seen on the platform as well as our existing users as well.
1: There's a a class action lawsuit over information given to Facebook. There were questions over end-to-end encryption. There was issues about information being passed on to China or directed via China. Is all of that now fixed for for all the millions of people that are watching this that use Zoom? Are they safe from any of those things?
8: Yes, so the overlying message that I want to convey is absolutely soon is safe. You no know, part of the expansion has been we have given it to schools. We are now providing Zoom for free for through 12 schools, 85,000 schools in 20 countries around the globe. And we really focused on ensuring that we're keeping all of those students and their teachers safe. In terms of some of the specific items you addressed, so the Facebook SDK, um, we, as soon as we became aware of that, we released a new release that night to remove the configuration that was allowing um, the transmission of the unnecessary data. Um, in terms of information going to China, we have removed, um, we do have a data center in China, but there is no, now it's changed so and there's no data that can be flown from the U.S. to China. And then in terms of end to end encryption. Um we, we are two fifty six encrypted for meetings that are within our platform and we're working on continuing to expand that encryption capability.
1: So to be very clear, China has no ability to spy on anybody having a conference via Zoom at this moment.
8: That is absolutely true. No
1: ability. Okay, we check that. Zoom bombing, another topical subject of people butting in unexpectedly in some cases graphic you guys say look it's about privacy settings talk us through very briefly top tips what do people need to do to prevent zoom bombing
8: yeah okay so there are some really simple and easy ways that everybody can use to keep their meetings secure and prevent unwanted guests so first and foremost add a password to your meeting very simple to do that don't post your meetings ID's in social media that will prevent unwanted attention for people that you don't want coming into your meetings. And last but not least, uh, and then the screen sharing capability to only the host. And that will also prevent disruption, even from invited guests into the meeting from taking over control of the meeting in an unwanted way.
1: So there are ways to prevent Zoom bombing. You just have to follow the, uh, the terms and conditions. The other thing I think that people are wondering here, and it's an investor question, too. If we fast forward a year and we don't know what the end of this pandemic, this health pandemic looks like. Do you think more businesses, more individuals will be communicating via Zoom and via other options, too, than there were prior to this? Can you hold on to many of the millions of people that have joined in the last month, two months?
8: Absolutely. I think we heard an example of that in your intro package, that small businesses are seeing ways to reach people around the globe that they never had the opportunity to do that for, as well as great human interest stories like grandmothers reading to their grandchildren across the country. And there's no reason why that should ever stop once we go back to more of a sense of normalcy. I think video communications is just being integrated into every aspect of our daily lives now, and Zoom is here to support that.
1: Yeah, we're going to continue this conversation, no doubt. Um, Great to have you with us today, and thank you so much for tackling all my questions. Kelly Steckelberg, CFO of Zoom, thank you so much for that. And I've tweeted out details of where you can find more important tips and advice at CNN, which helps you protect those Zoom conference calls and meetings. All right, coming up after the break, heroes who don't have to wear a cape, just a Golden State Warriors jersey will do. Steph Curry, lifts up some hard-pressed ICU nurses face-to-face next. to first move as we wrap up the show this morning I want to leave you with the story of an intensive care unit nurse in Oakland, California basketball fan Shelby Delaney wears a Steph Curry Gold State Warriors jersey under her uniform well the man himself couldn't resist a FaceTime call with Shelby and her team it was a small act of kindness making a huge difference as you'll see at the results at the end of this that's it from me stay safe please and we'll see you tomorrow
0: Thank Absolutely. you. I really appreciate you for everything you've done for me and for the entire Bay Area and for calling us today and taking the time. Absolutely. Thank you so much. I know you got some very important work to do. And we do. <laughs> we have uh, you know, so many people praying for you, rooting for you, um, and I know as things continue to go, uh, um, Hopefully, everybody taking their responsibility, their personal responsibility, to try to uh, end this thing sooner than later. But uh, thank you so much for what you're doing. Thank you,
6: thank you. Thank you, everybody. All right,
7: bye, sis. Thank you so much. All right, appreciate
0: you. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta